I want us just to sing that without any instruments one more time. Man, what a powerful song. Let's sing that. Just the chorus. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Before you sit down, tell somebody, just look at him, Jesus paid it all. Just say it to him. You can be seated. Hebrews chapter 2. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning into the throne room and for leading well. Hebrews chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews does a better job than any other New Testament writer in helping us understand why God became flesh. Why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, for which we celebrate Christmas. Every year as a pastor, our church would place a strong emphasis during these days leading up to Christmas for evangelism, for outreach. We would do several things, but one of the things that I remember back in the days we, we did the pageant thing. We had those large pageants. And, but one of the things that we uh, started doing was a, a, a night in Bethlehem. And we, our whole parking lot would turn into a wonderful, wonderful area in which uh, the, the, the whole congregation would present the real story of Christmas to uh, our community and the surrounding areas. And many, many people, we would, we would actually issue tickets. They were sold out usually within the first six hours. And so we started having to do it more. And the, the last place you would go to would be the tent where Jennifer and I were, were, were there. And that in, in Illinois, a lot of times during these days of a night in Bethlehem, it was cold. And so we had those old salamander gas heaters in, these, in this tent, and I, I, we had, we had uh, pews that were made out of, of hay bales. I shall never forget on one of those evenings in these first years of doing a night in Bethlehem, there were 37 exchange, foreign students who were uh, university students at Southern Illinois University, and one of their professors and his wife had invited them to come to our night in Bethlehem. All of them, with the exception of about three, were from China. As they came in the room, it was Jennifer's turn to share the gospel, and I was so glad that it was her turn. Because I had the opportunity to, to kind of mill around and meet with the students and meet their professor and thank uh, him and his wife for bringing them to uh, this particular event. Little did I know that for the first time, many of those students had just experienced seeing the gospel, and now they were going to hear about the gospel. And there that evening, over 15 of those students prayed to receive Christ and came to a personal understanding, a personal realization that Jesus paid it all for them. It was interesting to watch as they grew in their years at the university and that, that professor actually started a Bible study on campus 
uh, four international students that grew to over 300 students. The impact that he and his wife made on that university and in the lives of those students was amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, during this month of December, when we talk about the greatest gift of all, I want you to know that, that really in a nutshell today, what I want to do is help you understand why Christ came into the world. And today, we're going to get a little theology lesson, okay? I'll try to keep it, uh, I'll try to keep it as, as non-seminary as possible. But, but this morning, I want to do a good job with this. I want to take these theological passages of Scripture. Hebrews is a great book, by the way. It, it is a little difficult sometimes to understand, but I want to bring it down, uh, to, honestly, to a minimum where that I can understand it. Because if I can understand it, I think everybody in this crowd can understand it. I want you to know that I did go to seminary. I didn't enjoy it. No, I did. I did, but I wasn't always the, the sharpest tool in the box. I wasn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't finish uh, in the top uh, three in my class, okay? But I will tell you that, that many, many times we make something so simple become so difficult. You see, why did God come into this world born Jesus in Bethlehem's manger. We all grew up with this verse. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe that today? I believe that. Well, turn now to the book of Hebrews, and the Hebrew writer does a better job than anybody else in helping us understand why God became flesh. Exactly what they were singing a while ago. Emily beautifully sang that song this morning and, and led us in that song. But did you see the words of that song? More than just the melody, did you read, did you hear the text? He does, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews does a better job than anyone else in helping us understand the humanity of Christ. And in chapter 2, he talks about the fact that you and I, a part of fallen mankind, needed a bridge or a mediator between us to a holy, righteous God. And so therefore, to help us understand to help the Jewish people understand what was needed, he refers to Jesus Christ continually as a high priest. Now they immediately knew, the Jews did, when he talked about the high priest, every Jewish mind quickly grasped what that meant because they knew that the, who the high priest was. They had them. And so there, there are four qualifications before we read the Scripture so that you can clearly understand what the Scripture is saying this morning. Four qualifications. Every high priest of the, and the Hebrew writer knew this basically tells the people that Jesus Christ met these four qualifications. He is the eternal, supreme high priest. Here they are. Write them down in your notes. The, the four qualifications must be one of the people. The high priest must be one of the people. In other words, he had to be one of them. He had to be a Jew. He had to be living with them. He had to know them well. The high priest was identifiable. He became one of them just as Jesus 
became one of us. He must be faithful in ministry. The high priest was to be faithful in his ministry, not only to God, but also to mankind. He must be appointed by God, not something random or democratically chosen. The high priest was appointed by God to be the high priest. And then he must be cleansed from all sin. The high priest must be cleansed from all sin because one of the chief functions was to offer up a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, what the Hebrew writer is going to say is this, that Jesus became man to be the high priest for all of us, and he fulfills all four of those qualifications. He became one of us. He became flesh so that he would live with us, identify us, and yes, know us. Secondly, he was faithful to the Father in ministry. Every time you read about Jesus, he is always saying, I want to do what honors my Father. And you know he looked to his Father, speaking of his obedience on numerous occasions. And thirdly, he was appointed by God, so the Father the Father to come into this world, he was flesh, and yet he was all God. He was the God-man. The Bible calls him the infinite God-man. And finally, he was, he was cleansed from all sin because he knew no sin at all. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so the Hebrew writer said, as soon as we understand these four qualifications of a high priest, and if you want to read those, go to chapter 2 now, uh, and, and honestly, chapter 2 through chapter 7, you can get the parallel of those five chapters. Hebrews to the New Testament is much like Leviticus in the Old Testament. As soon as the Hebrew writer lays this out, he says, I want you to know four reasons why Jesus came into the world. And I want to give you those four reasons. Let's begin in chapter 2. And I, I'm just going to, I'm going to randomly read through this, but I want you to look at verse 5. For he did not subject the angels, the world to come, concerning which we were speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man? that you remember him, or the Son of Man, that you are concerned about him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things, now listen to that, in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for, for whom all are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons of glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified 
are all from one Father. I told you it was going to get theological this morning. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me, therefore, there's a reason that's there. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Ladies and gentlemen, there are four reasons that I can think of why Jesus came into this world, and I want to give them to you this morning, and if you'll allow me, I'm probably going to get pretty excited when I preach today. Because I've got to tell you that when I think about Jesus, and I think about this particular time of the season, and I begin to understand that this is a gift worth understanding, what would happen if each one of us walked out of this room this morning understanding why God became flesh. It would revolutionize our lives. It would change our lives because really the things that we talk about most of the time are nonsense. But the thing that we have, the one that we know lives within us, who is the greatest gift of all. Well, let me just jump into it. Jesus came, first of all, to recapture our lost destiny. He came to redeem us. We are no longer we, we no longer are what we were in the beginning of creation, and Jesus came into the world to recapture that lost destiny for us. Look again at verse 5. For he did not subject the angels, the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, and again, what I want you to understand is he's quoting Psalm chapter 8. He's quoting the Old Testament. What is man that, that you remember him, or the son of man that... that that thou art concerned about him. Stop for just a moment. I won't, again, get too theological here, but I want you to understand when he speaks of the Son of Man, he's not speaking of, of God. Many times the Son of Man is referred to as God, but it's not here. He's referring to humans. He's referring to us. And what is man that you remember him or the Son of Man? When you look at this, the Son of Man simple mankind in the book of Ezekiel, that was an expression. Son of man in the Old Testament is an expression of mankind, not of the divine son of God. And in Ezekiel alone, 80 times, God calls Ezekiel son of man. All the psalmist is saying, God, what are we and why are we so that you would know us? So that you would remember us, that you would love us so much that you would come and die? for our sins? Well, it's very simple. Beginning in in the very beginning in creation, God had a plan for us. 
And when Adam and Eve sinned, the plan fell through. Now, watch what I mean, because you see the plan and the design for mankind, when God created Adam and Eve, was they were to be dominant. They were to have dominion over everything. Genesis 1, I believe it's somewhere around verse 28, talks about having dominion over the flesh of the sea and over, or, or, excuse me, over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that, that moves upon the face of the earth. And in other words, they were to have dominion. But when Adam and Eve sinned, ladies and gentlemen, they lost that dominion. They lost that power. And that brings you to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, because in, in verse 9, the story begins to change. And when the writer of Hebrew begins to change this story, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by a, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone into this situation, God sent Jesus. Wow. Here is the story. Here is the picture. Adam and Eve sinned. They fell. They were not what they were designed or created to become. They lost. We lost our position. We lost our privilege. We lost our power. Into this situation, Jesus Christ, the Hebrew writer says in verse 9, comes into the world to begin to restore us back to that original position. Now, there are three basic ideas that are given to us in this verse, and let me just give them to you real quickly. And the first idea is man was created to have dominion over all things. The second idea is through sin, instead of the dominion, we suffer defeat. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. They lost their privilege, their position that God had given them. So through sin, Instead of having dominion, we have defeat. We live in a defeated world. I talk to defeated people all the time because, you see, sin cripples and destroys. It defeats us. But into this defeat enters Jesus and the purpose of his coming. One of the four reasons was to restore us back, to give us dominion again over all things. And when the Hebrew writer begins to list the four reasons why Jesus came, he said, Jesus came into the world to recapture our lost destiny. But the, the, the second reason Jesus came was Jesus came into this world quite simply to experience our trials. <laughs> he came to identify with us. He came to relate with us. He came to know what our suffering was all about. And so therefore he came as a man so that he could undergo the sufferings, the trials, the temptations that, that all of us undergo. Look at verse 10. We just kind of picked my way through this. For it was fitting for him. In other words, it was logical. It seemed right. For him whom are all things and through him are all things in bringing many sons of glory or in bringing us back to originality. Okay, rightful position, but to perfect the author. And, and when he speaks of the author of salvation, of course, we know God who is the head of our salvation. More than that, the, the Greek language here is saying he is the pioneer 
Oh man, the word author there is a great word in the Greek because it really means to blaze a trail. It literally means to be the first to go through the wilderness or an area where there are a lot of trees or ruggedness and to blaze a trail so that you and I who come behind can have direction and can with confidence proceed onward. Ladies and gentlemen, when the Hebrew writer speaks of him as being the author or one who has blazed the trail for us, he is saying it's for their salvation. What? Through suffering? Yes. It was through suffering that he's going to blaze the trail. In fact, it's a picture of God through Jesus Christ blazing a trail for us of which that trail was literally his blood. We follow his blood. I know that that's not real politically correct. Many, many pulpits today don't talk about the blood of Jesus. But I want to tell you, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. We are people who believe that because Jesus indeed paid it all, we can have a personal relationship. We can be made right. We can come into an, air, uh, an arena of forgiveness, total forgiveness. Listen, I don't, it's, it's not of my concern today what you may have done and where you come from. Jesus loves you and he died for you. And he died so that you might be forgiven. He died, though. He's talking here about identification. It's his blood that literally blazes the trail for us, for you and me, to become sons and daughters of God. Oh, identification. That's the first word. But the second word is compassion. He literally feels for us. That's why in verse 17, it says, for, see, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has also suffered, he is able to come to the aid or alongside those who are tempted. And so he identifies with us. He has this compassion. But oh, ladies and gentlemen, don't, don't stop there because I think that third word that we need to understand now is salvation. There had to be a high priest paid for your sins and my sins and what we have to understand about this high price this high priest that was paid is that only the only way it could be paid was through and by Jesus Christ you see that's why in the garden of gethsemane Jesus said father if it's possible let this cup pass from me it was not possible. It was impossible. There was no way that you and I could be saved except through Jesus Christ. You see, are you one of those preachers that believe that is the only way to salvation? Absolutely. You say, but, but, but that's very narrow and that's very one-sided. That's what the book says. Don't blame me. I believe the book. It's not my plan. It's God's plan. You know, I, I've sat on panels before, and you know, I, I know people sometimes, they, they want you to be very ecumenical. They want you to be very, uh, you know, very much a, uh, a persuader. I, I want to tell you, I love getting along with people. I really do. I, I don't intentionally want to make anybody mad. But when it comes to debate, I got something chasing me up here. Man, I, I start talking about the blood and the mosquitoes come out. 
I don't know what's going on up here, but, but I, I'm going to tell you, I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus, so I'm going I'm to smash this mosquito in about 10 seconds. But anyway, I want you to understand that, that when the writer of Hebrews talked about this, he wants you to get this, that, that in, in the ancient thought and mind, they thought that their mediator would be angels. That's why the Hebrew writer talks so much about angels. But they thought angels, but angels could not be our mediator and our savior because the reason for that is because they did not become men. They could not identify with us. They did not go through what we went through. But Jesus did. Jesus, the Bible says, he who knew sin, no, no, knew no sin. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, now, there are a lot of kinds of sufferings. I want to give you this this morning, and I think it will relate very well to the redemptive plan of God so you can understand him. The first kind of suffering is the kind that we can avoid. We can avoid some types of suffering, uh, especially through maybe just, quite honestly, making right choices. Do you know the biggest enemy I face every single day is me? It's me. Sometimes I make terrible choices. I know that's hard to believe out of a preacher, isn't it? But you know what? Every day, every day. And my wife says this, and she's, she's so brilliant. She sometimes makes me sick, but she's so brilliant. <laughs> she, she said this to me one day. She said, you know, we choose our choices, don't we? But we don't choose the consequences. She's right. We make our choices, but we don't choose the consequences of those choices. And so we could have avoided something, but there's another kind of suffering. That's the kind that you cannot avoid. That's the suffering that you and I experience, and it's not because we made wrong choices or right choices. It's because life is life. It's because we live in a world, a sinful world. We became a victim. We, be, we, we maybe weren't minding our own business. Maybe we were, we were serving God. Maybe we, we, were, we were praying and disaster struck. There's no rhyme or reason to it. We just couldn't avoid it living in a world of sin. There are times when we'll suffer, and it's absolutely never because we made a wrong, church, a wrong choice. It's because the suffering we cannot avoid. But there's a third kind of suffering, and that's the suffering that we must not avoid. And that's the suffering that I just want to bring to your attention for a moment this morning. That suffering that we must not avoid is suffering that if we go through it, it will make us better. It's good for us. It's character development. It's good to round us out. It, 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 to be all that we need to be. It's the suffering and the trials that James talked about and Peter talked about that would even make us more precious than gold when it was through. It's the suffering that we must not avoid. It's important for us to go through the process. Now, those three kinds of suffering relate to sin and redemption. And the first kind of suffering that, we, that can't be avoided could have been avoided. Adam and Eve didn't have to sin. It was a choice. God looked at them, and he gave them a choice. They knew right from wrong. But immediately when Adam and Eve sinned, there was the suffering that cannot be avoided, and that was the fact that God automatically, because God is God, 
reached down to Adam and Eve. Remember in the evening when he went through the garden and he asked the question, where are you, Adam? God knew where he was. It was a holy God who so wants communion and fellowship with fallen mankind that he's willing to come down and go the second mile. It's a suffering that could not be avoided. God never in his eternal mind ever thought that he would allow man to stay in his sin and that gap never to be bridged. I'm so happy for that. But there's a third kind of suffering, and that's the kind of suffering that must not be avoided, and that's the suffering that Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, did on the cross. Jesus didn't have to die for our sins. He could have. He could have. He, he would have desired. He did not have to become man, but because he knew it was the only way that you and I could be saved, it was a suffering that must not be avoided. It was a suffering that allowed for you you and me to know forgiveness of our sins. And let me paraphrase verse 9 for you this morning. It's only logical that God who made everything for his glory in bringing mankind back to his original design should allow Jesus to complete God's will by blazing a trail that all mankind should follow. Yet that which leads us to our salvation and must be marked by the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Okay. I told you there were four reasons why Jesus came. The first was to recapture our lost destiny, to redeem us. I'm so, I'm so happy about that this morning. But to experience our trials. But here's the third reason, to release us from our bondage. Ladies and gentlemen, the bondage that he, he has released us, not only sin, but the ultimate result of sin, which is death. In verse 14 and 15, we see that he came into this world to release us from that bondage. And let's look at that for that just a moment. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death, he might, I, I love this phrase, render powerless him who has the power of death. That is the devil. That word, render powerless, is in the aorist tense in the Greek language, which means it's done. Hello? Man, if I was in a Pentecostal church right now, they'd be shouting me down. <laughs> you say, you're in a Baptist church. I get that. Sometimes, uh, you know, I, I, I'm telling you, I used to pastor a happy Southern Baptist church, and I had a, a guest preacher or a friend of mine came in, and he was visiting our church. He actually wasn't preaching that day. He was sitting right down here where John's sitting, and he told me after the service, he said, man, I, I don't know. He said, you walked out in the baptistry in a white robe and baptized, and people were hooting and hollering and screaming. He said, man, he said, I looked around, and I thought, wow. He said, is this a Southern Baptist church? And I looked at him. I said, Carl, I'd rather have to Calm them down, then try to raise the dead. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes, sometimes when we see something, when we hear something that, that absolutely sets our heart on fire, we need, listen, I, I've seen some of y'all get excited over nothing. Listen to what he is saying here. The writer of Hebrews is saying that when Jesus died for our sins, Satan was stripped of his power in the arena of death. It isn't something present. It isn't something present tense. It's not something that's in the future tense. It's in the aorist tense. It's over with. It's done for. When Jesus Christ died 
for our sins, arose the third day. Satan lost his grip and the power of death and his threat and his fears that he had placed on mankind. Man, I don't know about you, but that even makes me as a Baptist want to shout. Because when I get to this, that, that stay with me now, that he might deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In other words, Jesus came and died not only for our sins, not only for us, but also to strip the devil of his power. Now you ask yourself, how did Satan have the power of death? Well, the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. It's very simple when you go back to Genesis and you read the account of man's fall. And again, I can't go into all of that, but, but if you remember, you remember what, what Eve told God? The woman in, in chapter 3, I, listen, don't get mad at me. I'm just reading the scripture here. The woman said to the servant, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Now you see, when God set the, the game rules out to Adam and Eve, he said, if you take of this fruit of this tree, you're going to die. What, what does Satan do? Well, you're surely not going to die. By the way, he's still doing that. God really didn't mean what he said. When they partook, we know the story. One of the things that happened, the fall of man, was that death came into the world. Satan's a liar. He's always been a liar. That was the wrong choice. Now, how was the devil then rendered powerless? Very simple. When Jesus died, when he was killed, Jesus, no, Jesus voluntarily laid down his life. Please don't ever call Jesus a martyr. He was not a martyr. Jesus intentionally came so that he could die for Tim and Alan and John and for every person in this room. Jesus was not a martyr. Jesus voluntarily laid himself down willingly because he knew this plan, the plan of God the Father, was that he would willingly die. The devil thought, man, this is the greatest day of my life because I've killed the Son of God. But what he did not understand was this, that he had killed the sonless the sinless son of God, and all of a sudden he lost his claim of death because he himself had taken the life of one who had never sinned, and all of a sudden he was stripped himself of the power of death. And when the Hebrew writer spoke of the fear of death, what he is basically saying is that because we are no longer dominated by the devil and death itself, no longer is that over us. The fear of death of the Christian no longer exists. It's not over us as believers. And people who have a relationship with God, it's now been absolved. Now, I've given you an incredible amount of theology, and if you understand it, kind of nod your head just like that for a minute, okay? But stay with me because I don't have time to explain any more of that theology, but I need to talk to you about four things real quickly about death. That's why what I have just told you, why we don't have to fear death anymore. 
the sting of death, which is sin, has been removed. You see, listen to me. When the devil comes around you and he will do this or he will send one of his emissaries and they'll begin to say, what did God say? Well, just take him to what God said. If you want to defeat Satan, just read the book to him. Just, just share with him. But understand this. The devil is a toothless, he has no stinger. He has no bite. There's no bite anymore. There's no sting there. The Bible says that, that the sting of death has been removed. The judgment beyond death need not be feared. Why? Because we have a great high priest. We have a mediator who is now standing between us and God. And so that when God looks at Alan's fear, he no longer sees my sin. He no longer sees my wretchedness. He no longer sees my filthiness. My sin, the Bible says, if we confess our sin, he who Jesus, our great high priest, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all iniquity. When God looks at Alan, God doesn't see Alan. He sees the Jesus who now lives in Alan. Oh, man, the judgment beyond death need not be feared. Therefore, I will not stand at the great white throne judgment. I will stand at the bema seat. I will give an account of what God, what I did with what God gave me, but I will not stand at that great white throne judgment. I will, be a, I will be a spectator, and I will enjoy a moment of that because at the great white throne judgment, you will hear the judge say, depart from me. I didn't know you. Man, ladies and gentlemen, you can avoid that. Listen to what else. Christ's resurrection guarantees our own. I had somebody ask me the other day, do you believe that, that when a person dies, I believe this, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We know that this shell does not go whoop. It doesn't beam me up, Scotty, or anything like that, okay? But we know that, that absent from the body, our, our soul, present with the Lord. But I do believe that one day the trump of God shall sound and the dead in Christ shall be raised. I don't understand all that. I, I can't, you know, verifiably tell you exactly this is how it's going to happen. I believe the word is, is clear enough for us to understand that one day he's going to toot and I'm going to scoot. Okay? And I believe that. Now that's really theological. The fourth thing is this, the devil cannot touch us. You see, those four things that we know all because Jesus Christ came into the world, and all because he died for our sins. And he rose again on the third day. Now here's the fourth and final reason. God came into the world to restore us, ladies and gentlemen, from defeat. He came into this world of defeated mankind. We were lost. We were battered. We were bruised. He came to restore us from defeat. And the ministry of Christ, his priestly ministry in Hebrews, when, when the writer of Hebrews talks about it, Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brother in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to who? To God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, to satisfy God's holiness and righteousness about our salvation. He literally had to come into the, 
the flesh to satisfy God. He had to die for our sins to satisfy the Father. That's why when he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. God said, it's not possible. You have to satisfy me. You must, the sinless Son of God must die on that cross. Ladies and gentlemen, that was for God. But in verse 18, we see that he came for us. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has also suffered, he is able to come to my aid and to come alongside of me, to come alongside of you who are tempted. And every time you and I are tempted, every time you and I have trials, every time that you and I are going through difficult times, God who's walking alongside of us says, yes, I know what you're going through. I understand that. Three things real quickly. Only Jesus can save us. The church can't save you. I know sometimes we act like we can, but we can't. Only Jesus. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, only Jesus. Then I want you to look. Jesus understands. You know, sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, Pastor, I, I, need, I need some counseling. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, one of my least favorite roles in the ministry, uh, in the pastorate, was counseling. I know it's a part of the work and it's a part of that. There are better counselors than Alan Spear. But, but I have a tendency, I, I will listen for a while and then if, if the if the obvious is glaring, I say it. That's not always real smart counseling, I guess. But, you know, it's like, it's like marriages that I used to counsel. I, I could tell you in 20 minutes. I could tell you in 20 minutes what the problem was. And the problem, you know, a lot of times it, it should have been over a good six-week period. But I would just say, I think here's your problem. And then I'd make somebody mad. The husband or the wife, I'd make them mad. Uh, one of the least favorite things that I used to do was weddings. I'm just being real honest with y'all. You, you think you understand preachers and pastors. I want to tell you, I love, doing, I love doing weddings. I love doing weddings where it was a grand celebration. It was fun. But, but I'm, I'm going to tell you, one of the first things I always did, and I always did this in premarital counseling, was try to talk them out of getting married. Do you understand why? Because if I can do that, they're not going to make it. Never forget, I, I accomplished it on several occasions. On one occasion, this young lady and this young man, and, 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 and it was in our third session, and he, he looked at me, and I could read his body language. John, I knew exactly what he was saying. I don't love this girl. I don't want to marry her. But he didn't have the courage to say that. I said, dear, won't you step out for just a minute? I looked straight at him. I said, hey, do you love this girl? He said, I don't think so. I said, so we're not going through with this. He said, well, will you tell her? I said, oh, huh, no. There ain't no way I'm telling her, buddy. You're going to tell her in my presence, and I'm going to make sure she doesn't kill you. So we don't have murder in the pastor's office. But I'm telling you, that day, it was one of those days where I had to become not only counselor, but I had to become you know, more than counselor, I had to understand. I sat there with that young lady that day and wept with her and cried with her, but I promised her, this is not the end of the world. In fact, honey, 
you have been blessed today. You just don't know it. And about three years later, she came to my office. She's on the arm of a good, handsome young man. And I asked him the same questions, tried to talk him out. He said, man, I wouldn't. He said, I love her. And she just kind of smiled at me real big. She hugged my neck later. She said, Pastor, thank you. Now, I don't know why I got off on that, but I'll tell you this. <laughs> I do know why I did. Because as a pastor, you have to model in many ways this understanding part. Jesus understands us. Now, I want you to think about this. I just said that only Jesus, only Jesus can save us. But Jesus understands Listen, there's not anything right now going on in your life that Jesus does not understand. Other people may not understand it, but he does. And third, here's the best part. Victory can be yours. It's yours if you walk in this exchanged life. It's not I, but Christ that lives in me. Now, this is a gift worth understanding. So, how do I get that gift? Well, many of you have already received Christ, amen? amen? Many of you have already come to faith in Christ. But it's just like this. Hey, Frank, would you come up here for just a minute? I have a, I really meant to get one of our better pens today, and I walked out of the house and didn't do it, but I will promise you I'm going to bring you one of the agape pens that actually cost more than 59 cents. But this is a very special pen because it, it's, it's got our logo on it and everything. And I, I want to give you this pen today. And I'm not an Indian giver. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you. And, and I'm not going to say later, hey, give me this pen back. And I promise you, I will bring you one of our p other pens too so you have that. But Frank, you know that I'm going to give you this pen, don't you? Yes, sir. Is it yours yet? Not yet. Why not? Because you haven't given it to me. You're a very smart guy, aren't you, Frank? Well, I didn't go to college. So, what do you have to do to receive that? Let you give it to me. Or take it. You're smarter than I am, Sonia. So. <laughs> You're both. You have to receive it, mm -hmm. because I'm offering it to you. But you have to take it. Thank you. Now, whose pen is it? Why? Because he accepted it and he received it. Jesus, worth a lot more than a pen, trust me, is ready for you to say, I get it. I understand it. Well, I don't fully comprehend all the theology today, Pastor, but I need Jesus. And by faith, Jesus is offering you salvation, you have to reach out and receive it by faith alone and trust that his grace is sufficient. Thank you, Frank. Would you do that today? You say, I may be the only person here. That'd be great. But I'm sure that there's more than one in this congregation today, that my simple childlike faith just would reach out and say, yes, Jesus, 
I know you love me and I know you're offering me this. I receive it. Let's pray together. Father.